0: 100 years of Parks Canada.
1: You, you want people to appreciate the environment that they, that they have, but just to step a little more lightly.
0: A conversation with Claire Campbell and some of the authors of a new edited collection on Canada's national parks system. I'm Sean Carage, and you're listening to episode 22 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. On May 19, 2011, Parks Canada will celebrate its 100th anniversary, commemorating its founding in 1911 as the world's first National Park Service. Preceding the creation of the National Park Service in the United States by more than five years, the federal government of Canada created a new unit within the Department of the Interior known as the Dominion Parks Branch to oversee and administer the country's forest reserves and a nascent assemblage of western national parks. Over the course of the next century, this government agency would, as Canadian historian Claire Campbell writes, convince Canadians that in their national parks resided the true wealth of a kingdom. In recognition of this occasion, the Network in Canadian History and Environment sponsored the publication of a new edited collection called A Century of Parks Canada, 1911-2011, which explores episodes of Canada's national parks history from coast to coast to coast. This book is the first to be published in Niche's Canadian History and Environment series in partnership with the University of Calgary Press as an open access publication. Listeners can find a link on our show notes to the book's website where they can download a digital copy and order a print copy today. This book features the work of leading environmental history researchers who met to circulate papers covering a range of topics in Canadian National Parks history including wildlife management, archaeology, aboriginal peoples and parks policy, population displacement, auto tourism and hunting. These papers have now been published and I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to speak with the editor and two of the authors of this unique collection.
1: I'm Claire Campbell from Dalhousie University.
2: Gwyn Langman, I'm an archaeologist with Parks Canada at the Western and Northern Service Centre here in Calgary.
3: George Colbitts from the Department of History here at the University of Calgary.
0: Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us and uh, to let our listeners know that we're we're here live at the University of Calgary, uh, recording an interview uh, with some of the authors from this uh, new book from the University of Calgary Press, A Century of Parks Canada, 1911 to 2011. And I want to thank the audience here for uh, joining us. Uh, this morning, uh, or this afternoon, I should say. Let's start off uh, with Claire. Uh, Claire, can you give us a little bit of uh, insight into how this edited collection project came together and and a little bit of information about the series that it's a part of?
1: Well, I want to say it it happened, or the genesis started when I was 11, and we came to Bant for the first time in a Volkswagen camper, and from then it was always destined to be, but that would probably be a little revisionist. Um, (laughs) My involvement with it began three years ago, uh, in 2008, when Alan McEachern, who's the director of Niche, uh, said to me on a train trip from Kingston, you know, Parks Canada is having its centennial in three years, and somebody should really do a book about it. And I said, really? Who did you have in mind? And he said, I don't know, just as long as it isn't me. Mm -hmm. And... I thought, okay, well, there's really something here because it's a way to. One of the big challenges of doing environmental history in this country is that we are so dispersed, mm-hmm. right? We are geographically, literally, sea to sea to sea. And this is a way to um, have people talk about areas of interest to them um, and to but in a, in a coherent fashion, just to bring us r- literally together in a, in a national project. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing we did was meet uh, here at U of C at the Parks for Tomorrow 40th Years On Conference in 2008. And then we met again uh, the next summer uh, at the Canadian Historical Association in 2009. And I want to say that that is really unusual in a book production and in an edited collection. And I think it's incredibly valuable because writing and research can be so isolating. And to be able to talk to colleagues both in Parks Canada and in other universities and to, to develop, your, to workshop your work is, is a really important process. So, this isn't an
0: edited collection in which the authors separately wrote articles and then submitted them to you. You actually met face to face to discuss this.
1: We circulated the abstracts with each other, we workshopped our draft essays with each other um, in Ottawa, I actually in somewhat a cruel and unusual punishment I, lo- I made the authors all sit in one room for a day until we were all done and with fourteen essays that took that was a long that was a, that was a marathon um, and that and so then you know handing it over to uh, UCP, which has just been um, an amazing experience working with people
0: mm-hmm. who
1: are willing to tackle the challenges of open access as well as, as print publication. Um, now as far as the series goes, this is again sort of a, an innovation in Canadian publishing and environmental history as far as I know. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I think Donna and Alan had been talking about it before before the Parks book came into being. But the idea of um, having books that are collections of authors speaking to each other as opposed to either single authored pieces or very sort of disparate or discrete Mm -hmm. collections. I think that's sort of part of the energy that you want to capture, and again, in a very dispersed network of scholars.
0: Yeah, and what I've seen of the book so far, there's much more coherence between the essays than what you would typically get in an edited collection in a, a monograph like this so let's let's deal then with some of the big issues or some of the big change. The book covers a breadth of history of about a hundred years. Um, so what are some of the biggest uh changes to Canada's national park system that you saw as the editor of this collection uh, over that period
1: well actually the the book you know, in some ways predates nineteen eleven because we do talk about the earliest parks in in the Rockies from the eighteen eighties one thing that was really interesting, given you know, you're know you working with 14 authors, they are across the country, they're doing very different subjects in their books, it was really amazing to see how um, organically the themes of change started to cohere between the authors, so mm-hmm. that people who were writing about Parks Canada and National Parks um, from the 1910s through to about the 1930s, we're all talking about the development of an automobile landscape and the development of parks for tourism and the way that national parks were being promoted nationally, internationally as icons of Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't do that deliberately. It was just that was the trend that they were seeing in in Parks Canada's history. In the middle period, we saw um, or we have a series of essays that talk about the challenge to that tourism or development-oriented mentality and a growing sort of um, ecocriticism, e- ecological kind of thinking, the use of ecological science, the use of in some ways archaeological sciences to bring um, a different view of national parks, not just as human spaces but as natural spaces. And then in the, the final cluster, or the final third of the book, the theme really has been the expansion of the national park system into the north. Mm-hmm. Um, into, into areas that are unprecedented in size and also that challenge our idea of parks by dealing with First Nations and the whole notion of the inhabited landscape as a national park or as a cultural landscape rather than the sort of stereotypical or impossible wilderness ideal that we often have.
0: Okay, so now one of the, the common themes that you specifically point out in the introduction was a tension between the national agenda for creating a park system and the local interests of Canadians living in and around, and in some cases within the boundaries of these national parks. Can you talk a little bit about how that tension came to shape the park system in this history?
1: It was really interesting that that, again, was a theme. If there was a single theme in, in all 14 of the essays, it was, probably, it was probably that. How to take what was being developed as a national ideal or a symbol of Canada and being articulated by a single government agency. Um, and I never thought I'd be writing a book about a government agency. Um, and watch it play out on the ground in incredibly different kinds of landscapes, right? We're talking everything from mm-hmm. the Bay of Fundy to, to the Alpine region. Um, I guess, I mean, one thing that I was really struck by was um, the amount of, the value that came from getting the local communities engaged. And so... um, Bill Wazer does a great essay on Prince Albert National Park, Mm -hmm. whereby he says he he opens his essay by saying, you know, this was the one time Jean Chrétien backed down, um, that when faced with an intransigent cottage community that insisted that a place that they had um, occupied for decades and generations Mm -hmm. was as much theirs as that belonging to, quote-unquote, the people of Canada. Um, I was uh, over on Prince Edward Island a couple of months ago, and the PI people were saying, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is a national park. It's for the people of Canada. Um, but how much can, I mean, the flip side to this sort of idea of, of national belonging and, and national access is how much can these individual places bear? And so when does local or regional familiarity and sense of commitment and investment, when, mm-hmm. does, when can that be balanced against this kind of idealized Concept that I I belong in Banff as much as any of my other 31 million fellow Canadians. Um, So, on the one hand, I guess the idea of of the local um, really pushes or challenges this idea that we can have a national system of any kind. And on the other hand, I suspect that getting people to buy into their local parks, into landscapes that they recognize and value. By virtue of familiarity, is probably one way of encouraging public support for national parks.
0: Right, and I assume most of the national parks, the majority of the visitors come from either the province in which it's situated or the immediate local area. I mean, I Banff is as much a national space as it, it is a Calgary space, yes.
1: or an international space too. Right, it's been marketed as the face of Canada for over a hundred years. So.
0: Well, let's dig into some of the chapters here. We'll start with George. Uh, your essay uh, looks at uh, film and the relationship between humans and bears in the national parks, particularly in the mountain parks. And I assume if anyone here has visited the mountain parks, they perhaps had an encounter with a bear, maybe, in, at some point in their life. Uh, and th- this is the subject of George's uh, article. Uh, so I want to ask George how uh, that relationship between tourists and bears changed leading up to the 1970s when, as you say, the bear came to be characterized as a highway bum.
3: <coughs> well, thank you, uh, Sean, and uh, I guess uh, I'm, I'm guilty for having never really encountered a bear in our park system, and uh, I'm still waiting for that encounter, but uh, uh, the term highway bum comes from an expression used by a park superintendent in the, in the late 1960s, and it was at a time when um, a, a, a convergence was occurring between exploding automobile traffic and tourism in the park system, especially the western park system, and uh, and and highway encounters with bears. And uh, by the late 1960s, there was uh, something uh, for the park service itself, uh, uh, a growing conundrum about how to manage this problem, because the problem went back for years. In fact, almost from the beginnings of uh, automobile traffic in the park system, the park's uh, managers uh, were we're trying to discourage interaction between wildlife and humans, and especially bears. But um, what Claire was talking about, some of the tensions between uh, you know, a national ideal and, and a local ideal, what I found was, um, as I worked, looked into this issue, is that there is often terrific tensions between, say, popular culture in parks areas and what uh, parks managers wanted to ideally see unfold and and one of the major tensions was uh was a growing popularity in in tourist traffic to visit with feed um and photograph bears while they were visiting banff jasper any of the mountain parks and uh uh really the uh, what what my chapter looks at is is how how the 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 park service more or less confronted that issue and um uh, in the late 1970s, uh, wildlife cinematographer Bill Schmulls, uh filmed a classic, I think, a, a, a path-breaking film for the parks, uh, the, well, the park service, but also, I think, for Canadian parks history, and it was a film called Bears and Man, and in it he encapsulated a new type of uh, idealized, idealized encounter between humans and bears. Um, and uh, what, what I did was I, uh, I explored that film in more detail. I interviewed Bill Schmals. I talked to others who were around at the time. Uh, Steve Herrero here at the University of Calgary was in, involved at the time with uh, re-educating parks uh, tourists and uh, automobile travelers uh, and trying to reconstruct uh, a, a more, I guess, sustainable tourist traffic into the park system at a time when it wasn't really sure it wasn't really clear whether our parks had space for bears or not uh the cullings were increasing to such a degree by the late 1960s that there was some questioning whether there was space for bears in uh, in our national parks areas and uh and so my uh, my chapter really explores that changing sensibility and uh and and some of the uh, some of the uh, interests at stake as uh, as p- this popular pastime was called, sort of confronted in film.
0: So I think this chapter um, is one of the best examples of demonstrating the influence of auto tourism uh, mm-hmm. on the national parks. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that auto tourism played in shaping the history of bears in the mountain parks? In particular, I'm curious about these popular tourist traditions with photography, and one that you describe. Uh, a tradition of people photographing bears inside their cars? Yeah,
3: yeah the, uh, well the whole the, usually it's, it's viewed that um, or in, in a lot of literature that technology, changes in technology can manifestly change your understandings of nature and even wilderness and I think the automobile among all the technological uh, innovations of the 20th century changed the way people understood nature and changed also visits to the national park system. Uh, it's been called windshield wilderness, and I think what was occurring in uh, in our parks as well as in the American parks uh, concurrently was that there was a um, complementary behavior between bears and tourists, especially along on road, roadways, and uh, uh, Steve Herrero calls especially the uh, the North American black bear as manifestin- manifestly tolerant as a species, and uh, the black bear, among all the species, uh, learned to habituate itself along roadways, along picnic spots that tourists and auto tour travelers were using. Uh, used every contrivance to beg, uh, uh, beg food from tourists. Tourists complied because it, it pleased tourists and took photographs of the whole encounter. Um, and uh, and in this way, uh, automobile technology was was changing the way people were understanding parks. Um, unfortunately, too, uh, the, as autom- automobile traffic increased, especially after World War II, uh, this whole encounter became, in the long term, unsustainable. So,
0: And this is part of an argument you make in the article about parks being hybrid landscapes, that uh, this film, Bears and Man, as you argue, uh, redefined um, space between wild animals and park visitors as a hybrid landscape in an ideal that, as you say, arguably remains influential to the present day. In what ways do you see sort of continuity about uh, in terms of that representation of national parks as spaces that are um, influenced simultaneously by people and nature?
3: Yeah. Well, in a, in a way, it continues to be the fact that it's a negotiated landscape that includes wild animals. In these areas, and humans who are traveling through them or uh, hiking through them, and uh, one of the elements that came out of this film uh, when I was talking uh, to Bill about his project in the late 1970s was was the, uh, the the way that the bear was recharacterized in the landscape itself, and it uh, it really falls in line with some of the observations of Tina Liu, who talks about the shift in the 1970s away from Protecting animals um, and conserving animals to conserving wild spaces and what this film was about was um, trying to um, Spread in in popularity or reaffirm in the in the public tourists mind um, the, the Banff or Jasper or any of the parks areas as wild spaces It didn't matter if you had a direct encounter with a bear. It mattered more that the bear was there and the message of the film became, as uh, Bill, uh, Bill allowed for it, um, Chief Dan George did the original narration of this film, and throughout his, his, uh, his admonition to Canadians was, respect the bear, uh, and, and, and therefore give space to this animal, uh, know it's there, and your, uh, your understandings of wilderness uh, are based upon uh, that knowledge rather than a, an, an intimate interaction with that animal, especially feeding it. So uh, I, I think that in, in many ways uh, the idea of bear country is itself uh, uh, an outflowing of this uh, this new conception of wilderness. Uh, and and uh, this film that I'm talking about is really uh, uh, capturing up some of those ideas from the 70s. And
0: your chapter captures, I think, a phase in the National Park's history of dealing with the tension between uh, an ecological mandate and a mandate to serve tourist interests. But Gwyn, your, your chapter puts a, a new spin on this that I haven't seen uh, f- featured very prominently in park history, and that's the role of, of uh, archaeological research uh, in shaping uh, the national parks, that there are uh, archaeological and historical values to these spaces uh, that, that also need to be considered. Can you explain for listeners some of the, the major changes in archaeological research in the mountain parks in the 20th century?
2: That was one thing that I've been enjoying about this collection of essays that it's not just talking about park establishment questions, but some of the changes that have happened over the years in the kinds of research that go into it and the kinds of research that's considered appropriate or or useful to the parks, too. Well, the big change is that there is a program now. You know, 40 years ago at that first Parks and Protected Area Conference, some of the essays that were in there were saying, you know, there's no Point even looking for traces of people, ancient people in the landscape, because it was always too harsh and inhospitable an area. You know who would live in the mountains? So there really is no archaeology to be done at all. You know, which which we now know is absurd. Of course, people were <laughs> all over this country all the time. And as archaeologies come along, we've started to realize that, particularly in Banff, there's a very long story of human use there. When you're driving through Banff and heading west out of town by the Vermilion Lakes, there, you're driving right over top of sadly to say, right over top of some, <laughs> some of these very, really, very deeply stratified sites. There's a long history there, too. Um, there wasn't much room for that sort of research at the beginning, because partly because parks were generally being managed from so far away and the, the local managers were dealing with other issues at the time. And once the regional offices were set up in, oh, when was it, in the 60s, 63 or something, even as early as that, the, the first archaeologist that came out to work in, in the mountain parks and out of the Calgary office was not until 1978. I mean, it's, it's really recent stuff. We still have someone in our office who's been working there as long as we've had archaeology in Western Canada. Anyway. And he's not retiring yet. He's not an old guy yet. It's very early stuff. Although, it's got an early start. There was a, a very first archaeological site that was set aside as a protected site, consciously protected as an archaeology site in Canada, was 1913, and it was in Banff, and it was on what's the golf course now. And it was a fellow who was working with the National Museum of Canada when they had a few archaeologists that were charged in those really heady days of setting up the museum there with uh, reconstructing the archaeology for the whole country. And he came out on his way farther west into BC and saw this site and thought it was pretty cool and walked across the hall when he got back to Ottawa to to Harkin and said, you know, we should do something here. And they did. They set it aside with a sign on it. They protected it. They said, uh, penalty for disturbing this site, $100, 1913. That was serious money, right? Like that was meant to be a deterrent. Well, that lasted until 28, (laughs) when the golf course expanded (laughs) for other reasons. And then nothing basically was done at all until 1969.
0: So what's the current state of archaeological research then in the mountain parks?
2: Currently it's, it's quite active. We have uh, six of us in Calgary that do the research for the parks in BC and Alberta. Um, we participate in environmental assessment research just like we do in the province. Very much a part of the growth of uh, archaeology in the parks was linked to the rise of archaeology in the provinces as well as, well as this heritage legislation was established in all the provinces and territories in sort of analogous way it came along in the parks too. We participate in that. Um, a really big change in it too is the way that work is done with the new park establishments and the northern parks. It's, it's very much done in, in concert with First Nations concerns and with traditional ecological knowledge. We work a hand in glove with the various communities that are involved there. A uh, new change for us too is now that we're starting to establish marine parks and marine protected areas. There's There's more increasing role for underwater archaeology and the marine guys which do very cool things, too. Mm. <laughs> the The work that the um, National Park Marine Archaeologist has done has been recognized as just standard setting for the world. Some of the work they've done on the Red Bay and, and to, you know, everyone heard about them finding the investigatorship up in the Arctic last summer. Really cool work.
0: So how then does the archaeological research of, of Parks Canada fit with its ecological integrity mandate? Uh, is there conflict, uh, or does the archaeological research complement that mandate of, of Parks Canada?
2: It's a real complement. I was thinking of that when you were saying earlier, everyone has their bear story, and of course archaeologists all have bear stories too, because we're in the backcountry all the time. But one of my colleagues who works in uh, Guayanas right now, part of his focus of his work, he's dealing in what's happening in some of the very early karst limestone caves that are there, and he's been working on one that goes back... Ten ten thousand five hundred 10,500 years ago. And what he's finding is is butchered bear bones. It's it's, it's bears and it's dog remains. And it's very early Mm -hmm. people on those islands going in and hunting bears. Like there's a very long relationship back and forth between humans and bears. One of the projects I've been involved in is with the uh, initiative for bison restoration in parks. It's it's restoring um, animals that have been extirpated from a landscape for a long time as bison were here. If you're trying to restore the ecological system the way it used to be, how do you know what that used to be? Well, there's no you know, modern wild bison population. You can go mm-hmm. back and, and study for that length of time. So that's where archaeology comes in. You know, Where were they? When were they there? What was the population ratios like? You can get in a section of the teeth of the animals and tell them what they were eating by the isotopic ratios. in them. And archaeology is always one of those fields that straddles science and culture at the same time.
0: And it seems like, too, in protecting archaeological sites, Uh, you replicate that tension then between protection and use that's persistent throughout this book. Um, Just from the perspective of some of the authors here then, uh, what did you see in terms of the history over this 100 years, or more than 100 years, in terms of that uh, dual mandate, as scholars have pointed out, between preservation and use in national parks? How did this change uh, over this period, and how do we uh, manage that tension today?
1: You know, I I think it's... Having, and, and like Gwen says, one of the things that I really enjoyed about working with these issues and, and with these authors is that um, so much park literature is about the early period where um, questioning the impact of. Humanity on the natural world is sort of is sort of a sideline, right? It's more the the dramatic story of park creation or park architecture or whatever. Um, what I really liked about this collection is that it brings the park story into the 21st century and then engages with we think real policy issues. So this question of how does environmental history, what use can it be to people who are trying to make these decisions in Ottawa or in the, all the field units? Um, my sense is that you know, it's, it's not going away, that in every major piece of national park legislation, while incrementally ecological integrity has been um, nudged ahead and ahead until ultimately ecological protection is, 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 for the record, supposed to take precedence over human use, um, the idea of making these places available... For the what is it? The benefit, advantage, and enjoyment of the people. I think is the classic, the classic language mm-hmm. that has been repeatedly entrenched. Um, and Parks Canada is a creature of our government, right? It's designed to make places of the Canadian geography available to the citizenry. So I think if if the biggest fundamental change is that. There's a wider discussion about this duality and the fact that there is this sort of uncomfortable, comfortable tension. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't ever see one fundamentally displacing the other.
3: Maybe I'll jump in here and, uh, for me, the uh, the question of use over preservation—it's an it's an intriguing question because the next question is what is use and what 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 are we talking about in terms of use and. Uh, Gwyn's comments here about uh, the bison in Banff. I've been involved kind of tangentially with the the issue of bison belonging in Banff and when I first got in, into the into the question it, it, it forced me to kind of think through well, are, are bisons kind of natural to Banff? And then it kind of offended what I had grown to know about Banff and grown up about Banff and uh, expected <laughs> and uh, now I'm I'm quite happy with the idea that bison might return to Banff and it'll It'll force me to think through or, um, or follow through on some of my assumptions about what this wilderness area is, but also its possible use. And uh, that hearkening back to First Nations use uh, many, many years ago or, or with time, uh, other people's use. Um, for me, uh, my own participation in this, uh, in this collection has reaffirmed how uh, how parks are not only places, but processes, uh, ecological processes and, and places of the human imagination. And that is constantly changing. And, and for parks managers, I think what the history teaches us is that that's a moving target. And so in the 21st century, are we going to be looking at popular culture changing and expectations going through huge changes to what we revere as a wilderness area? Are we going to see skateboard parks in the Bow Valley? Are we going to be seeing more dragon boats in Banff? And and how does that force us to kind of think through, well, what is a wilderness area? How much of it is an idea of wilderness? And for parks managers, the history, uh, I think, suggests uh, the the increasing complexity of managing use over preservation and preservation over use.
0: This book has some uh, important contributions for managers and policymakers. But what about park users? In the end, what do you want readers to take away from this book before they go on their next vacation to a national park? What do you want them to learn, or what kind of knowledge do you want to uh, transfer to the general park user?
1: That they're not the first ones there, and that if you probably don't need a cappuccino and... uh, (laughs) Just, I mean, for me, one of the things that I find most rewarding or most useful about environmental history, although I guess "use" is a loaded word in this discussion, but um, is a reminder. And, and I think Gwen's work is was to me the real eye opener in this in this collection. That um, we can, you know, throw our hands up if if they're going to pave a. Uh, a thoroughfare through Banff or um, if there's concerns about Wi-Fi in Kedji or whatever but um, it's been centuries and centuries and centuries and so I would hope that Canadian citizens would just be able to read through these and not not, not go to parks I mean you don't you, you want people to appreciate the environment that they that they have but just to step a little more lightly Um, The other thing that I would say that this sort of readers as a whole could take from this book, and and this comes out in the epilogue written by Lyle Dick, who's the senior historian with Parks Canada, that, um, and this kind of speaks to George's comment about Parks' processes, that parks historically are places of dialogue between any number of constituencies, right? It's not just Parks Canada agency, it's not just you know, my family and their camper. It's, it's what makes national parks a hallmark of liberal society in that it's a place where you get a myriad of political and ecological and academic interests all trying to figure out what we want to do with our country. And I, th- I would like readers and citizens to see themselves in that discussion when they're reading the book.
0: Well, readers can uh, pick up a copy of A Century of Parks Canada, 1911 to uh, 2011, this May, uh, but they can get a digital copy right now. And we'll link to that on the show notes for this episode. I want to thank all of the uh, participants in this interview. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Gwyn. And thank you, George. And uh, thanks to our listeners for listening. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Claire Campbell, George Colpitz, Gwyn Langman, and me, Sean Karrasch. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page you can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you have any ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback on this episode, you can contact me through my website at seancarage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of of nature's past.